The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as well as the latest updates from Ukraine, we look at the story of how the citizens of Kriviri saved their city from Russian forces in the early days of the invasion. And we dive into the issues facing both sides in the air war and ask what the West needs to do to support Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 7th of November, day 257. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, who's live from Kharkiv, and Dr. Justin Bronk. He's the senior research fellow for air power and technology in the military sciences team at RUSI. I started by asking Don for the latest from Ukraine. Well, hi, David, and hi, everybody. The lines were fairly static over the weekend, but that's not to say there wasn't a huge amount of activity and, and violence across the lines, Maybe uh, mainly artillery-led and missile-led. Um, the, there are reports from uh, numerous Russian telegram channels that a lot of mobilised Russian forces have been, have been killed, com- complete units wiped out. These are messages from the very small number of survivors going back to their, their loved ones in, in Russia. Um, again, as we've often said, got to, got to be careful with these telegram channels. Um, you know, never take them at, at face value, but there are there were su- sufficient number of these to to, to lend credibility to that. Uh, that would speak of the poor level of training and, and equipment that the that mobilised Russian forces have got along those lines. They seem to be just pushed in there to to, to hold the line to, um, to, to either in the south around Hezon, we think they are backfilling to, to enable the sort of better trained and experienced units to come out of Hezon City. But around the Donbass, we think that they're just holding the line and just holding holding up that advance, the push, Ukraine's push through to Savatove, that main town, that big that big logistic hub on the road down into uh, into the Donbass. So a lot of violence, a lot of people, um, a lot of people being killed there on, from Russian mobilised forces, we think. Um, also suggestions today, UK Defence Intelligence is saying that Russia... Uh, has lost a, a significantly higher rate of aircraft than it can replace. Their words, significantly higher. They're assessing about 300 aircraft. This this, this chimes with what General Zeluzhny, Ukraine's the head of Ukraine's armed forces, said um, recently, said last week, actually, that, that Russia had lost 278 aircraft. That was more than double the 119 that, that Russia lost with the whole of their Afghan campaign. Uh, and UK Defence Intelligence is suggesting that that's the lack of air superiority exacerbated by the loss of experienced crews and poor maintenance that's led to that loss. We're going to speak in a minute to uh, to Justin. Be be fascinating to him him talk about that. Uh, another update to just be aware of on Saturday, Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's Minister of Defence, he uh, put out in a tweet that there's an, uh, the latest military aid package from the US and another four hundred million dollars. This is going to refurbish Hawk air defence missiles. They're old, but but kind of good. They sort of do do what they say on the tin. Um, also going to refurb 45 T-72B tanks, mainly by provision of advanced optics. 
They're also going to supply 1,100 Phoenix Ghost drones, these super secret uh, drones. I say super secret because we've never actually seen a picture of them. We've been trying to chase up what these things are for months now. Um, but they, we think they are loitering munitions that are then, then able to, that also have a warhead. So are then able, once they've picked a, a target of interest, the, the operator has seen, are they going for air defense or radars or tanks or command headquarters or whatever? They can, once they've seen what they want, they can, they can direct the drone to, uh, to go and destroy that, uh, that location. And that seems to be where the, where the edge of, of sort of smaller drones, smaller unattended air vehicle technology seems to be. Um, also, the $400 million is going to, going to provide 400 armoured riverine boats. So very interesting. If we're thinking about what might happen as and when Hezon is taken back by, the city is taken back by Ukraine. So to, to, to affect, have a military effect along the Dnipro River there, these boats will come in hugely handy for that. Uh, and then also low comms, training, maintenance and support. But, but another big, big chunk of money there that uh, Alexei Reznikov is, um, is lauding. And the only other thing I'll mention is um, Ukraine's ambassador to UK, Vadim Prustaiko. He's been speaking to Sky News this morning and he says that his main concern are the, the huge number of Shahid 136, these Iranian drones, not, not, not loitering drones. They are effectively, I mean, they're, they're low, slow, quite noisy and they have about a 50 kilogram warhead. Um, but so quite effective, although a lot of them are being shot down. But they still, they they are, they seem to be leading Ukraine's, re, sorry, Russia's recent push to degrade Ukraine's civil infrastructure and their power infrastructure. Um, Mr. Pristaiko is saying that, that he's very concerned about a huge number of these uh, these aircraft, these drones that are being held in Belarus, um, possibly, obviously, bringing Kiev into uh, into range. But uh, but hopefully more of that later with with Justin. I'll take a pause there. Thank you very much, uh, Dom, for that. Uh, Joe Barnes, you're in Kharkiv. Can you give us a sense of what uh, life is like on the ground there? What have you been looking at? Uh, hi, folks. Yes, here in Kharkiv, the northeastern second city of Ukraine. Some kind of depends where you're based, 20 to 30 miles away from the Russian border. Um, and it's probably the first place I've been to in Ukraine that where the war kind of feels quite close in the fact and it's while the war isn't close actually lots of the shops are still boarded up there is still lots of kind of missile scarred buildings and the lack of kind of not atmosphere is the wrong word but a lack of people actually roaming the streets i know it's it's very cold here now we're kind of at between kind of like three and four degrees during the day so people probably prefer to stay off the streets from but just during a brief walk around um just not a lot seems open. So whereas, unlike in Kiev and other places, you can you can buy a McDonald's or a KFC. You can't do that here. Um, I went to try and buy some water supplies from a local supermarket, and that was also boarded up as well uh, around the corner of my hotel. So it just kind of it just feels a bit more like a ghost town than anywhere else we've been on this trip so far. And um, what kind of stories have you been looking at over the past few days? You've been travelling across Ukraine. Um, what have you seen? Um, so I'll, I'll start with what we had published in the Sunday Telegraph. And it's quite an in- intriguing story about a pro-Russian politician, a history lesson from his uncle and a dozen cement mixers and how that kind of bizarre concoction helped to save the city of Krivyri from falling into Russian hands. Um, so it's a story about Alexander Vilkul, who 
is uh, himself, he's been quite a successful politician. He served as a deputy prime minister once. He was a governor of Dnipro Provorsk, which is the kind of region where his uh, Krivi Ri is. Um, but on February the 24th, he didn't hold any political position. Um, so kind of as missiles were raining down on his city, um, which is probably, we can consider it a bit of a gateway between kind of Kiev and the east. So he, when we met at kind of a secretive location, he had a map scrawled out in front of him and he kind of pointed out that if Krivi Ri had fallen, it would have given the Russians a bit more of a staging kind of post to, to encircle the east of the country to then potentially move and encircle key but um what was intriguing was that he he was telling me about his story and i then went to speak to a lot of other people about this because you kind of obviously you want to be careful and make sure people aren't self-promoting too much everyone like kind of everyone everyone kind of backed it up and he was basically the the, the city's deputy mayor he gave him a call in the early hours as they were both woken up by the sound of kind of missiles raining down on on their country and they all went to meet him in the mayor's office, who is Alexander's dad, Yuri, and kind of over this, the kind of time it took for Alexander to light a cigarette, to smoke it, he had basically come up with a plan to protect the city, which didn't have any significant kind of manpower. It had 600 volunteers um, with two mortars. I can't remember. He didn't say what size the mortars were, but that's not enough to stop a kind of an advancing army. And they had no like serious vehicles. They were just they were just kind of volunteers, probably illly trained, with rifles each. Um, so they didn't have enough to protect the city from a Russian invasion. But basically, what he kind of deduced over the time that he smoked this cigarette, so he suggested that everyone should pour out all of the machinery they could find on the streets. And Krivi Ri is known as the steel heart of Ukraine. It's it's got these vast kind of iron, open iron ore uh, pits which would probably be the size of Monaco, some of the larger ones. Um, it has these massive kind of steel-producing factories. So they've, they've got loads of this kind of vast machinery kind of sitting around. And he basically told people to drag out as many of these cement mixers and kind of dumper trucks and lorries and buses that they could find and block the runway. And people were kind of like questioning, why are you doing this? Why? And he went back to a story that his uncle had told him. His uncle was a former Soviet Union military pilot. And it was about how the Soviets managed to capture the Czechoslovakia in 1968 when they invaded. And he basically told the story about how the main uh, airport in Prague was captured at 5 a.m. by a, uh, a Russian flight from Moscow carrying kind of special forces, which had got over Prague and said, look, we need to land. We've got engine failure. And then as soon as they landed, they kind of took over the airport, secured it and made room kind of for big transporter planes to kind of bring in tanks and artillery pieces to help the ground assault. And so Alexander basically told this story and said that, look, the Soviet army captured five airports in Czechoslovakia and ultimately captured the country. So he, his basically message was that let's block our airport and make sure the Russians cannot land, uh, use it to land and kind of capture our city. And so they trusted Alexander. He's like a kind of a well respected uh, guy in Krivi Ri. He's, he held kind of high-ranking positions in kind of local industry boards where like they would liaise, like 
like, basically not quite unions, but like kind of civic uh, boards that would kind of liaise with the government to help the steel and, and mining industries there. So and then on the first day of the war, so February 24th, it pans out, no kind of planes decide to land. The pitter and patter of rain kind of filled the air, missile, the sound of missiles and kind of artillery from around filled the air, but no planes turn up. Then on the second day, suddenly this Russian transporter plane, which they believe was loaded with parachute, paratroopers, escorted by two fighter jets, was spotted barreling towards their city. But as Alexander described it to me, they had to descend for a real thick cloud of fog that kind of enveloped enveloped the city. Uh, so the Russian pilot only realised that the runway had been completely blocked off when he was about 200 metres from the ground. So it was basically had to make a kind of an emergency pull up and kind of abort that landing, which ultimately stopped a team of Russian paratroopers, as described to me, landing in Krivi Ri. Um, and then the next move was Alexander ordered these giant kind of, and they're three or four stories tall, um, mining kind of trucks. And what they do is they basically drive from the bottom of the mine to the top with about 100 tonnes worth of kind of dust, rubble and soil in to be for the iron ore to be extracted from the mine in, in these plants. And they were basically placed on all of the roads in to Krippi Re. Any other road that couldn't, or, so roads, bridges that couldn't be blocked off, they used kind of detonation charges which were found in the mines um, to destroy them, to basically stop them. Basically, they, they kind of hailed their good luck at that point because the, the rains had started to fall. The, the ground alongside the roads were completely kind of bogged down, so no tank would be able to really move through it with any efficiency. Um, and then eventually a, a Russian tank convoy did kind of try and enter Krivi Re, but they got stuck behind these huge yellow dumper trucks which kind of weigh 250 tons and sit about four stories off the ground when they're full um and the russians didn't know what to do um so alexander decided to call a, a local military contact he knew and the ukrainians eventually created this kind of cauldron effect where they shot the rear and the front tank of this convoy forcing the um forcing the Russians to basically flee on foot, knowing their time would be up very quickly if they decided to stay sitting in their tanks. Um, and this is what spawned one of the first images of Russian uh, sorry, Russian tanks being dragged and towed by Ukrainian farmers. Because basically, after the Russians have fled, the Ukrainian farmers went out and hauled this kind of treasure trove of tanks and artillery pieces into Krivery. And then another kind of great bit of luck would be had it. One of the guys that worked in the um, kind of an older older gentleman that worked in the military planning office in Krivery happened to be a former artillery man. So he could help kind of train some people up. And the next time a kind of Russian tank convoy moved on Krivery in March time, they were fired on by their own ammunition and their own tanks, their own artillery. Uh, in a battle that eventually saw them push some 50 kilometres back from the town. Um, and I just think it's a it's a really fascinating story. So the, the guy, Alexander Vilko, is not pro-Russian as in pro-Putin. He was, he was once in favour of kind of closer 
ties between Ukraine and Russia. He didn't believe that Ukraine, Ukrainian should be the, the country's only official language. He thought Russian should play a part. Because a, a vast chunk of, of, of that part of the world does speak Russian, and many of them people there spoke Russian as their first language. It's now kind of changed, and people have made a genuine effort to ensure they only speak Ukrainian there, which is quite fascinating, but that's probably for another day. Um, so I think that was, a, that was a really interesting story, and uh, I'll stop there for that one. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Joe. Dom, can I just ask you, uh, from a military perspective, what's what's what are your what are your reactions to the story that Joe's told us of the of the, the citizens of Kriviuri coming together and uh, essentially improvising their their defence, which seems to have paid off? Well, I think it's fascinating. It speaks of the the culture we've seen in Ukraine for the last few months of well, last few years, but it, since February twenty fourth of this of improvisation, improvise, adapt, and overcome the old mantra. I mean, it's fascinating. Look at the, some of these, some of the things they're doing. That it's fairly low level stuff. Parking these. I mean, I, I know these these tumper trucks are massive, as Joe says, four stories, four stories high, two hundred and fifty tons. But but it's quite a simple tactic to block the runway. But it's the doing it. It's someone pulling these ideas together, and then everyone else with every instinct in their body, every fibre saying, oh, this could end badly, I've got my family to think about, etc., etc. But But people come together to say, yeah, it's only going to work if we all, if we all lean in. I think it's absolutely fascinating. It does speak of, of, the, um, of the, the societal endurance and, and resilience. And it also shows how um, very, even great military machines can be defeated quite simply. There's a for those who have access to the BBC iPlayer, there's a fascinating, I think, seven-part thing on on Russia at the moment about the. Uh, it's called uh, it's called Trauma Zone. It, it charts Russia from 1985 to 99, when it all sort of collapsed at the end of the Cold War. But in there, it was showing that in the in the revolution, or the, the would have liked to have been a revolution in 91, when largely held back by Boris Yeltsin. I mean, they were the Russian civilians were adopting tactics that they'd seen used against them by Afghan Mujahideen, by just getting large bits of tarpaulin and draping them over the tanks attacking, um, attacking central Moscow and just denying the soldiers inside the ability to see where they're going. It completely wiped out that military capability. So, so things like this, it, it, it's all very good having anti-tank guided missiles and, and all the rest of it, and they're, they're terrific, <laughs> believe me. But you know, there, are, there are many, many things that civilians can do. We've seen these porcupines, the, the big sort of tripod structures that are welded together to, um, to stop vehicles moving. Um, we've even seen uh, just buses. Uh, if you put them together, imagine, imagine a, a street. We've got some tanks coming down the street. You, you want to stop those tanks. All we've got is a couple of just civilian buses. If you point them nose to nose, but not, not sort of directly across the street, they'll just tank or just roll through that, but put them in a kind of crescent, a V-shaped formation pointing towards the tank. Very, very difficult to get to get through that unless the, the, the vehicle can get over the top, um, which they, they not, not all of them can. I mean, there, so there are some very, very, some very low-level things, actually quite simple things to do that civilians can do if they know how to. And this is why we need to get John Spencer on the pod because he's, he's produced the Urban Handbook for how people can do this sort of thing. Um, but yes, it's fascinating what can be done at a very low level with just a little bit of thought, a little bit of application and innovation, and then everyone deciding, yeah, I'm going to, um, I'm going to take my chances and lean in and, and let's all go together. Thanks, Tom. I know you had a, a quick question for Joe as well. Yeah, Joe, hi. Great to hear from you. I just, um, just wonder if you could react to some, some breaking news I'm charting here, 25 minutes old, of uh, reports of mine explosions along the border, the Ukraine-Russia border in the north, sort of um, northeast of Chernihiv, um, north of Sumy. There's reports that on the Russian side of 
the border, there's been a, a, a number of mine explosions or at least two, either separate incidents or two mines at the same incident. I think it's probably two separate incidents, um, which uh, there's suggestions that soldiers and FSB officers have been uh, badly injured driving over uh, anti-tank mines, that they are either the mine layers have been have put them in the wrong place or it's bad drills by the border guards. But I just wonder, you're up in Kharkiv and looking at that sort of northern, that border there against Russia. Can you just give us a feel for, for, for what's happening there? Has Ukraine had to hold a lot of forces there to, to prevent any further incursions or just what's the, what's the mood, what's the, uh, the feel for any further advances from, from Russia back across the border? Unfortunately, Tom, I think Joe's just messaged me to say he didn't actually hear that question, um, as the, the Wi-Fi is a little bit dodgy up in Kharkiv. Um, um, yeah, sorry about that, Dom. Um, the Wi-Fi is a bit unpredictable here, um, I presume, because the power is not 100% stable all the time. But that's uh, but that's kind of what I'll, I'll speak about now. Is um, One of the, the main stories that I've looked at while travelling through Ukraine is how people are going to cope with the winter Um as I mentioned earlier, it's it's kind of it's three or four degrees outside at the moment. It's it's bitterly cold for me, but I'm now sat inside a kind of a warm hotel room shielded from the elements. But many people across Ukraine don't have that kind of luck on their side. Um, so, for instance, when we were in we were in Japarizia a while ago, and we visited a housing estate that was hit by a Russian S three hundred rocket or missile. Uh, at the beginning of October, in the first week, people people died in the hit. It was a big kind of news story, uh, which received a lot of attention at, at the time there. But so we then travelled back just just about a month later to see what people were doing in that area and how people were living. And we kind of realised a lot of people had moved out, but some people didn't have the same kind of fortune and the ability to move out. Uh, one lady, Eleanor, because she she basically had her elderly mother-in- mother-in-law to look after and couldn't physically move her that easily. Uh, there was another chap called Serhi. He had lived in the apartment block for 50 years and basically said the attack had made him more resolute than ever, but he didn't want to give up what he had lived with for 50 years. Then then we met a another chap called Anatoly. He um, had actually escaped from occupied territory, moved that, so he had escaped from Russian occupied territory, that kind of the hell that we've heard of those stories there, moved to this apartment block only for it to kind of the war to land on his doorstep again. And they were they were living in a so Sir he was outside, he was um cooking his pork shashlik kebabs on an open fire pit because none none of the building has gas. Um they had intermittent electricity. Uh, many of the windows were blown out. Um so you just kind of you have to think what it's going to be like for the people of Ukraine as they come in. So kind of the really bitter cold winter months and so November, December doesn't actually start to really get really cold. It's it's kind of January, February, March time when you when you kind of you'll have the snow on the ground and it'll be well into the minuses and sub zero temperatures. So there's a there's a there's real questions from a lot of these people that well they hear lots of promises from the West, lots of promises from the Ukrainian government about being given new homes, new places to live, new windows, but but actually that support probably isn't coming fast enough for some and so it's, it's not a not a damning criticism on the ukrainian government because they, they have a hell of a lot to clean up but there are going to be kind of thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people that are living in kind of war-torn war-scarred battle missile wrecked apartment blocks 
uh, in some of the coldest months, uh, kind of winters that Britain couldn't dream of. So uh, that's where I kind of think I leave leave it there for my thoughts of the week, as there are lots of people kind of living in these hellish conditions, and my voice is about to go because I've been suffering from a bit of a cold myself. So I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much, Jay, for joining us, and do hope you do feel better soon. And uh, Justin Bronk, you've uh, just published a fascinating paper on the air war and what you think, uh, what Rusi thinks um ukraine needs to do now what what the west how the west needs to support ukraine i just want to pick you up on something you mentioned kind of early on your your paper suggests that the air war was much more f- closely fought at the beginning of the war than generally has been reported could you give us an account of that how so sure so uh essentially what happened in the first uh couple of days of the war was that uh russian electronic attack uh using electronic warfare equipment was very effective at degrading and, and jamming a lot of Ukrainian radars. And in addition, uh, the, the large barrages of cruise and ballistic missiles on uh, Ukrainian air defense positions particularly forced a lot of the surviving systems to move urgently to avoid being hit. Uh, and that meant that essentially Russian uh, sorry, Russian fixed-wing aircraft were able to uh, conduct quite deep penetration, strike penetration sorties, uh, up to about 300 kilometers inside Ukrainian-controlled airspace, uh, around 100 to 140 sorties a day um, for the first three days while Ukrainian air defenses on the ground were kind of regrouping, repositioning, and trying to reset damaged equipment and, and repair things. Um, during those first three days, the therefore the Ukrainian Air Force, in terms of the, the fighter aircraft, were trying to hold the line in terms of defending Ukrainian airspace more or less on their own. Um, and while they had some significant uh, isolated successes from flying very, very low, um, exploiting the terrain um, and and you know the fact that they've been training for these sort of operations for a long time uh, to try and get underneath Russian radar coverage and kind of ambush Russian strike packages from from below. The, the Ukrainian Air Force took really quite serious losses in those three days. And the message was kind of, we can't do that again. Um, it's not sustainable because of the huge technical overmatch that Russian aircraft have compared to Ukrainian fighters, particularly in terms of radars, radar and missile reach. Um, once the Ukrainian uh, ground-based air defenses started to really come back online uh, from kind of the third day onwards, Russian uh, medium and high altitude penetrating sorties across Ukraine started to become pretty quickly unsustainable. Um, And so they switched to very low level attacks for kind of the first week of March. That led to unsustainable losses to short range shoulder fired man pads. um, So man portable air defense systems. So then they tried to fly by night, um, although only a very small portion of their fleet, the the, the Sukhoi 34 uh, fullbacks, the, the, the fighter bombers, really had any training for that sort of um, low-level night attack mission set. So it was already a very reduced part of the Russian strike fleet that could that could be used. And even there, once the Ukrainians started to get night vision equipment to their, to their manpads operators, um, that became pretty costly as well. Um, but so the kind of message I would I would highlight from that is there was a lot more Russian strike activity than we saw in terms of fixed wing fixed wing um, air force strike operations at the beginning of the war, and their fighters were very effective and have been throughout, even though they've been forced to stand off since the the, the ground based air defenses got back online. And so, if we don't keep up supply of ammunition and and ultimately replacement systems. For those Ukrainian medium-range and short-range SAM systems, things like SA-11 Book or SA-8 OSA, 
then there's nothing to stop at that point the Russian Air Force suddenly becoming much more effective than it's been up to now. Um, and we sort of glimpsed, glimpsed what that could look like in the first few days. Albeit in those first few days, the Air Force were also going after Ukrainian air defense systems. And so they were limited in some ways by the slow nature of their targeting process. Um, they were often hitting quite accurately positions that had already been vacated. But if you were to read that across to attacks on infrastructure or attacks on static frontline positions um, these days, it's a real threat. And so, you know, having focused very strongly on the ground war in terms of equipment provision up to now for very good reasons, it's important the West doesn't get complacent and, and now prioritizes resupplying uh, and ultimately replacing those Ukrainian medium range SAMs because the Air Force on its own won't be able to keep the Russian Air Force out of Ukrainian skies if those SAMs run short of ammo or are, or are slowly attrited. Well, this is fascinating. Thank you, Justin. I know Dom's got lots of questions. I just want to ask, you've sketched a, a fascinating picture of the early days and weeks of the conflict. Can you just give us a sense of what it looks like at the moment? Um, what are the tactics and the strategies being employed? And, and, and it sounds as if really, really the, the, the Ukrainian Air Force is, is on top. Is that fair? Uh, I, I, to be honest, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it that way. So I, I would say there's a, a significant degree of mutual denial in terms of the ability to effectively use air power for close air support on the front lines. Uh, neither the, the, the Ukrainian Air Force has taken really significant losses, particularly in early October, trying to be more aggressive about conducting airstrikes on Russian positions, particularly down south in Kherson, because not only are Russian ground-based air defense is still strong, despite the use of AGM-88, the, the, the high-speed anti-radiation missile, um, which has attrited Russian radars to some degree and, and forced them to operate in a safer but more more kind of less effective manner. But the, the, what the Russian Air Force is spending most of its time in terms of sortie rates now doing is they've divided up the, the kind of lines of contact into eight different air defense zones. And they have a, a they maintain a combat air patrol of, of at least two fighters in each of those pretty much all through daylight and, and sometimes in the night as well. Um, with primarily Sukhoi 35, uh, so one of their air superiority fighters, and MiG 31BM, which is this this rather unique Russian, very large uh, long range interceptor. Both of them are equipped with very powerful uh, long range radars capable of picking out low flying aircraft against clutter from a long distance. And also with both uh, R-77, which is the standard uh, Russian Air Force long range uh, active radar missile, which comfortably outranges even in, an, in, a, in, an, in a sort of even confrontation, the R-27s that the Ukrainians are equipped with. But also the Russians are able to fly high and fast uh, at some distance behind their own front lines, which means that their missiles start out with a lot of energy, whereas the Ukrainians, because of the Russian fighter patrols and the ground-based air defense, the Russian ground-based air defense near the front lines, have to approach the front very, very low. So their missiles, even if they had a comparable missile, are starting out with much, much less energy, so they will go much less far. Um, the Russians are also using a lot of a very long-range air-to-air -to -air missile called R-37. Um, and essentially what that's done is push back the ability of the Ukrainians to, to sustainably fly sorties, even at very low altitude, to the front lines. They're still trying, but they're taking significant losses and it's not really sustainable there. But equally, the, the, they are, the Russians are concentrating on trying to slowly and steadily attrit those Ukrainian SAMs that are preventing Russian aircraft sustainably operating near the front lines if they operate low level there's a lot of kind of standoff rocket lobbing um that's essentially just airborne artillery it's not a precise form of attack um it's relatively safe for the russians to do certainly um 
But it, it, it essentially, what the Russians can't do is what they did in Syria at the moment, which is kind of tote around at medium altitude, taking their time to identify targets and then relatively accurately dropping sticks of unguided bombs. They can't do that because the Ukrainian SAMs are still there. Um, what Ukrainian fighters are spending most of their time doing at the moment is hunting cruise missiles and shahids uh, in the interior, um, which they are having some success with. But again, they need resupplies of um, particularly short-range air-to-air missiles there, R-73s. Justin, you mentioned um, the the missiles that the Russian uh, that the Russian jets are using, uh, and, and also the point of your paper really is to is to say that we should we should provide more supplies to the Ukrainians. Um, can I just ask? We, we know that the Russians are running low on um, other ballistic stocks. Is that something that's affecting? Do we know if that's something that's affecting the the air force as well? Is that could we could we see in the future the Russian air force run out of the, the missiles that they use, or is that just something we don't know? Uh, so the Russians may be having difficulties with some of their, uh, in terms of stockpiles, with some of their air-launched precision-guided munitions, particularly uh, standoff ones. So they, they, they've been using a lot of their uh, something called KH-29, uh, both T and L, so TV and laser-guided versions. Uh, that's been one of the mainstays of their Suko-34 fleet's uh, standoff attacks near, on fixed targets near the lines, uh, as well as uh, larger things like KH-59, which is a, a, an air-launched cruise missile. Um, on the other hand, they have enormous quantities of, of unguided rockets and bombs, so uh, they, they can continue to use those where they're, where they're able to get access for, for an extremely long period of time. Um, we have seen an increase in recent weeks in the Suko 34 fleet, so really high-end fighter bombers, conducting unguided bombing uh, raids at low level on, on Ukrainian frontline positions. That would support the theory that they're running relatively low on KH-29 and 59 because there have been significant losses in the KH-34 fleet. It's only in the Sukhoi-34 fleet, uh, you know, 17 or 18 confirmed of the um, 135 or so that they started the war with. Um, so they're probably keen to avoid risking them to ground fire, particularly man pads, but also anti-aircraft fire, if they can. And the fact that they are having to do so anyway suggests, yeah, maybe they're running a bit short on certain uh, air-to-ground uh, guided munitions on the other hand, the fact that they've expanded the use of uh, R-37, so that this very, very long-range air-to-air missile, from the core MiG-31 fleet, where it's the standard armament, to also a portion of the Su-35 fleet, um, suggests they're not particularly worried about stockpiles of R-37, um, because if they were, they probably would keep that for the specialist platform that is the MiG-31. Uh, so I don't think the, the Ukrainian Air Force is going to be delivered by the Russians suddenly running out of that stuff. Justin, hi, Dom here. Um, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Fascinating stuff. It's really good that we're able to have a, have a, a deep dive into all things air power, air defence. In your paper, you talk about the actions the West should be encouraged to take. The, by the West, I mean those external supporters, obviously not just countries in the West, not just NATO, but countries all, uh, all leaning in to supply military aid for, for Ukraine. Limited by, everyone's limited by by, by money, um, bandwidth, political bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. So would you, where would you say the, the priority is? Is it facing that lack of offensive capability? You talk about the need for F-16s, F-18s, Gripen um, to lead on the offensive capability, or defensive, the need for more man pads, self-propelled anti-air guns and so on and so forth. Given where we are at the war at the moment, where would, where would you suggest um, external support looks, uh, looks to, to lean in as a priority? 
Um, so I, I would divide uh, the it more by uh, deliverable time frame as opposed to particularly offensive or defensive. I think actually the priorities in the air domain are, are pretty much exclusively defensive, including fighters. So uh, the the biggest priority, as as we've already heard today um, it, it, from from yourself, is is clearly the getting on top of the shahids, uh, the the Iranian uh, launching munitions being supplied in large numbers. Um, because they're cheap enough and, and usable in large enough numbers that Russia can very effectively use them to kind of bolster its relatively limited remaining stocks of cruise missiles and particularly things like the Iskander uh, 9M723 uh, and 720 ballistic missiles um, for this counter-infrastructure campaign. Uh, previous iterations of the Russian long-range strike campaign um, have essentially floundered on insufficient concentration of firepower. So they tried to go after Ukrainian communications capabilities, Ukrainian infrastructure, Ukrainian uh, industry, defense industry, Ukrainian fuel infrastructure. None of them really, uh, they were never able to achieve lasting and decisive damage because Russia just doesn't have the stocks of these um, expensive cruise and ballistic missiles. But in this latest iteration, since essentially the second week of October, they've been mixing very effectively those higher end cruise missiles and ballistic missiles against large infrastructure targets where those larger warheads are, are much more much more useful. So things like large power stations, interconnectors, large water treatment plants, hydroelectric plants, um, and then using the hundreds of Shahids to target all of the smaller stuff where, frankly, they just don't have the numbers of cruise missiles to to cover the whole country. So they're using the Shahids to hit substations, small pumping stations, infrastructure in terms of, you know, things like office blocks where, where you know, infrastructure offices, uh, your offices are based. Um, and so it's, it's providing them a much more sustainable and, and therefore dangerous campaign. So in the very short term, clearly the West um, needs to send as many manpads, so man-portable air defense systems as possible. They do work against Shahids. Uh, mostly from the rear aspect, but uh, they do work. And so to to not only um, resupply the, the mobile air defense teams that are using them at a significant rate, but also hopefully expand them. Um, obviously, there are limited stocks left in the West, so this will partly require purchasing from around the world, um, from countries who might be willing to quietly supply, not directly to Ukraine, but via Western intermediaries. Um, more of the uh, self-propelled anti-aircraft guns, modern ones, so things like the German Gepard, which is very effective, uh, both against Shahids and in some cases cruise missiles, but there just aren't enough of them. Um, ideally, gun systems are more sustainable against Shahids because individually they're not very hard to shoot down. They're just relatively cheap and usable in large numbers. So expensive missiles aren't really a sustainable answer. Um, clearly, the supplies of IRIS-T, uh, SLM and, and NASAMs, the, the Western surface-to-air missile systems, are very, very welcome to bolster defense against cruise missiles. Um, but again, Ukraine is a huge country, and not only do the launchers need to be supplied, but also lots of ammo, which is going to be a challenge, but one we have to try and rise to. Um, less so for NASAMs, because it can use uh, AMRAM, which is the, the sort of standard uh, Western long-range air-to-air missile. Um, and then in the sort of medium term, we really need to worry about, um, you know, first of all, getting Ukraine more supplies for their uh, mobile surface-to-air missile systems that they're using near the front lines to to keep the the Russian air force sort of out of the game, if that makes sense. Um, and key there is is the supply of Western fighters in the sort of medium term, because in, you know, so we're talking three to three to four five months maybe, um, because we can't keep those SAM systems supplied forever. We don't make the ammunition um, for a lot of these systems. 
Um, and there aren't enough Western surface-to-air missile uh, batteries that we could send um, to cover both the, the infrastructure in the cities and the frontline areas. Uh, the Russian Air Force has been pretty cautious. Um, wherever there is a, is, is a significant threat, they've generally been very, very uh, reticent to actually try and destroy it. So even a small number of Western fighters with air-to-air missiles and radars that can meaningfully compete on, a, on an even keel with those Russian fighter patrols and threaten Russian strike aircraft from a, a safe distance would be hugely effective. Clearly, the key is not necessarily training the pilots. The Ukraine has more trained fast jet pilots than they have aircraft. And it, Western aircraft are generally fairly easy to fly, albeit quite difficult to operate really effectively. But you know, a couple of months of training would probably be sufficient there. The key will be setting up the ground support infrastructure, the maintenance chains, the air bases. Ukraine has kept its air force alive by operating from small, um, relatively rough dispersed air bases around the country. And so any Western fighters supplied before there is some sort of ceasefire. Um, and, and at that point, you know, sure, there'd probably be American aircraft brought in at that point to, to be the backbone of a future Ukraine. It sounds from what you're suggesting and what you're saying in the paper that the, in particular, the, the, the lack of uh, Russian attack helicopter sorties over the border after the, after the very first few days when they were raiding up to 50 Ks inside the lines, this, this push to hold them over their own lines, it seems as if low technology in great abundance, which might, might hint at, uh, for, for Western forces, UK in particular, that a huge number of infantry are required, outweighs technical brilliance in the air. Is that fair and does it speak of a casualty aversion from russian air power that they haven't tried to launch uh, multiple ship um, suppression of enemy air defense and destruction of enemy air defense missions inside ukraine yes yeah, quite a bit to unpack in that question so um i, I think for, for a start the thing to, to emphasize is that um manpads uh, only have an effective range of about ten thousand feet and, and and at maximum can only really be pushed up to about uh, 15,000 feet, um, and even then not normally against fast jets particularly effectively. So if your Air Force has freedom to operate at medium altitude, as indeed you know, Western fighters have uh, consistently over the last two decades in multiple conflicts, um, manpads just aren't really a, a, a defense against them. The, the issue for the Russian Air Force is that first of all, they haven't been able to coordinate um, their different fleets together in, in large complex strike packages to, for example, combine striker aircraft, that means the Ukrainian air defences have to respond, uh, you know, suppression shooters to, to fire anti-radiation missiles to, to force the you know, Ukrainian SAMs to then either turn off their radars and reposition or risk being hit, destruction of enemy air defences assets to push in and, and try and actually find and, and hard kill those SAMs while they're, while they're suppressed. Um, with fighters to to sweep against any any kind of interceptors and perhaps electronic warfare uh, assets. Now, this is how the US and its allies would put together a suppression of enemy air defenses campaign. But the Russian Air Force has never really operated that way. Um, they only really train in two ships or occasionally four ships. And mostly those training sorties are pretty simple navigation flights, weapons deliveries on unguided ranges, or you know being targets, uh, practice targets for ground-based air defences, which is great for the ground-based air defenders, but not great training for fighter pilots. Um, so essentially, they don't really have a lot of the core skills, both at the, in terms of aircrew, but also in terms of planning and senior commanders. They don't know how those sort of operations work, so it's difficult for them to run them. 
what that means is as long as Ukrainian SAMs continue to function, Russia can only fly low. And at very low level, A, they're vulnerable to the manpads, and B, it's difficult to, to, to find, identify, and then accurately hit your targets because flying at several hundred knots, very, very low level, you only see them for a couple of seconds before you're over them. Um, and so, you know, for now, it, it speaks to the inability of either the Ukrainian or the Russian Air Force to do what we would see as effective close air support. On the other hand, if the Russian Air Force, even with it, it, its deficiencies in close air support, was able to get over the Ukrainian SAMs and could operate at medium level, they would probably have a, a very decisive shaping impact on the battlefield, even though they can't do kind of exquisite, precise, organic, targeted close air support like, like Western Air Forces do. For example, the HIMARS, which so far Russia has been unable to find and, and, and destroy a single one. If, you, if Russian Air Force patrols were able to rove around the battlefield, um, you know, they would very quickly spot the, the launch signatures and could then attack those HIMARS. And it would be much, much more difficult for Ukraine to use them effectively. Um, same for artillery, same for concentrations of, of, of forces. So you know, even without Western uh, sort of high-end multi-role uh, air capabilities, the Russian Air Force could be highly, highly destructive against Ukrainian battlefield and, of course, infrastructure um, targets if they had more freedom. Um, so it's this mutual denial that's that's led to the war being very much a ground war so far uh, and very much more dependent on infantry and massed artillery and, and UAVs um, rather than necessarily speaking to any um, kind of hitherto unknown truth about the nature of modern war from a Western perspective. Sure, thanks. Um Mutual denial sounds like many of the relationships in my life. Um, before I go, could you just introduce for us, please, the European Sky Shield Initiative and offer an opinion on whether or not you think post this war that that might come into some future security guarantee for Ukraine short of actual NATO membership? Um, so, I mean, the, the difficulty is that it's very, very difficult to put... But first of all, you can't put a hundred percent effective air defense system over any any country. So if you did the, the the country that's come closest is Israel, where you know hundreds of billions have been spent, uh, not just on Iron Dome, but Iron Dome sits as as one element within a layered defense system that includes both the air for, you know the the air side of things, um, you know, even attack helicopters being used as counter UAV uh, shooters with Hellfire. Um, but of course, above Iron Dome in the ground side of things, you also have David Sling, you have Patriot. Um, so there's a whole series of layered, incredibly expensive air defense systems there with very, very effective commander control, very well integrated. And Israel is a tiny country, comparatively speaking, with uh, very, very well-known threat directions. They know exactly where they're going to be launched at from, from, from particularly from le parts of Lebanon, as well as the Golan Heights um, and parts of, and obviously from Gaza. Um and even then, they can't do 100% defense against uh, all rocket attacks, let alone higher-end ballistic missiles uh, or cruise missiles. So when you're looking at a country the size of Ukraine, it, it's never going to be possible to put 100% um, protection in place. The question is, what is good enough to outweigh the risk and the cost of Russia embarking on strategic strike campaigns? Um, and so, for example, at the moment... The, the defences already in place are working fairly well. Um, you know, you're already seeing more than half the cruise missiles being fired, being shot down. Um, you know, close between 75 and 85 percent of most Shahid waves being shot down. 
Um, the problem is it's not sustainable without more Western support on the air defense side of things at both the high and the low end. Um, and also, of course, that support needs to encompass helping them with the re- re- reconstruction so that Russia can't just strike one target and then move on. They have to keep going back and striking the same targets to keep the effect up. So even countries that don't have air defense equipment to potentially um, you know, either buy and, and, and supply or supply directly could help by, for example, supplying spare parts and expertise to help repair Ukrainian power stations, substations, pumping stations, interconnectors um, to try and you know rebuild that resilience. Ultimately, this Russian strike campaign is not going to knock Ukraine out of the war. It's not going to, in itself, re- reverse the battlefield fortunes. But the key question for you know how much Western aid we send for the air defense uh, needs in the next couple of months is how many Ukrainian civilians are going to be forced from their homes, but also just frank, frankly, how many are going to freeze to death over the winter? Um, you know, we can help and we should help more. Cool. Um, hi, Justin. Thank you for doing this, Joe, in Kharkiv at the moment. Um, I was just wondering if you could en- enlighten me and probably everyone else listening. Um, there seems to have been a, quite a debate brewing over what to kind of label the Shahid 136 drones. I keep on calling them kamikaze drones, but I notice the kind of the air power experts on Twitter would prefer to call them loitering munitions. Could you kind of describe why we should call them loitering munitions and not drones uh, using your kind of analysis and expertise, please? (laughs) Well, this is a, this is a pet peeve of mine. So I'll be very happy to um, rage against the, the, uh, the tide in this case. Um, So essentially the the first thing would be that the, you know, the Shahid and, and, you know, I've, I've, as I'm sure you've seen many, I've, I've seen one um, blow up quite near me and seen the terminal behavior, I've inspected them in terms of components inside. They're relatively simple things, but ultimately all they are is a propeller-powered missile with with slightly larger wings than usual to give it more range. Um, we don't call any other kind of missile kamikaze or suicide, um, and, and it would seem absurd to do so. Um, so th- there's nothing inherently different uh, about the the shahid i mean loitering munitions of this class have existed for decades the the israeli Har- uh, harpy being the first mass produced one in the late 80s um and it's only recently that that people have started calling them kamikaze drones now the iranians annoyingly enough do call them something similar the the sh- uh, shahid means martyr um but ultimately you know, as i say we don't call any other kind of missile a kamikaze or a suicide missile uh, for certain parts of the world, particularly in Japan, it's it's quite disrespectful and offensive because the pilots, the kamikaze pilots back in the day were very poorly trained young men, forced in many cases, even bolted into their cockpits and forced to kill themselves flying into ships in, a, in an ultimately totally pointless um, you know, suicidal attempt to save their country. So comparing them to a missile that sacrifices nothing is a little disrespectful for for some cultures in particular. Um, and ultimately, what differentiates the Shahid and, and things like the Harap and the Harpy from other missiles is the capacity to loiter. So the ability to circle a target for a while, either until one appears, if it's got an anti-radiation seeker, or to circle and, and then attack at a given time or uh, from a given bearing. So hence, focusing on the loitering bit um, as opposed to anything else. Um, ultimately, you know, uh, drone munition, I, I think would be fine. Um, my, my issue with the term drone is it's a bit like saying vehicle. Um, you know, a drone can encompass anything from a, a tiny quadcopter that you buy for five quid from Argos, um, up to a, you know, multi, multi hundreds of millions of dollar, uh, thing the size of a 737, which 
can fly in the stratosphere and, and you know, has lethal autonomous attack capabilities and is a stealth aircraft that can cross continents and only the US flies in the in the black world. So attempting to use the term drone to describe anything in a in a in an analytical context, you, you can't because it's it's too broad a term. It can mean almost anything. It's like saying vehicle, you could refer to a dump truck or a Formula One car. Do you know what I mean? Thank you very much for that, Justin. I've just got one more question for you. Would you be able to sketch out for us the the sort of broad two scenarios following your paper? Um, firstly, what happens if the West follows what you're writing and supplies Ukraine with what you say it needs? What, how does the battlefield look uh, in the weeks and months to come if that if that happens? But also what happens if this doesn't happen, if they don't get the supplies they need? What happens then? Uh, so on the cruise missile and Shahid front, uh, what happens if they get the additional supplies of, of urgent supplies of manpads, self-propelled anti-aircraft guns and, and more ammo and launchers for uh, SAMs is that a lot of Ukrainians who would otherwise be forced to leave the cities, because of course, you can survive much more easily in the countryside um, than in the cities without electricity or running water, because you can dig wells or you have wells and you can burn firewood, but in the cities, that's not doable. Um, so a lot of evacuations and, and more refugees, if they can't, um, you know, hold back the tide, as it were. Um, but also, you know, just a lot, a lot fewer dead civilians um, for people who can't move or won't move. Uh, a lot of people will freeze to death in their homes uh, this winter if we don't supply them with with more air defence capability um, and also with components to help repair as much of the damage as possible on an ongoing basis to the power and water grids. Um, but ultimately, Ukraine will keep fighting and it will just make them more angry and make an eventual settlement even more difficult um, because, you know, it, it adds to the sense of, of complete outrage um, among all Ukrainians. And rightly so. I mean, the blitz spirit is still a thing in, in popular culture in the UK. And that was, however long, nearly 80 years ago. Um, you know, this sort of deliberate bombardment of civilians will create very lasting hatred and enormous in, in addition to what's already there and, and huge casualties. Um, in terms of the supplies to the uh, Ukrainian air defense system more generally, particularly medium SAM ammunition and eventually fighter aircraft, if Ukraine gets them, then the Russian Air Force will largely remain irrelevant. They will simply not be able to exert a shaping influence on the ground campaign. If they don't get them, then there is the danger that suddenly Russia actually starts to gain a much greater degree of access to bombard in a, with a very heavy and quite efficient, so just cheap, unguided bombs in large quantities, um, Ukrainian positions, units, bases and infrastructure, as well as cities near the front lines. Um, and that actually could seriously affect the the uh, you know, ongoing initiative in the war, which Ukraine has wrestled from the Russians at such cost. If Ukraine is able to maintain its forward air defences uh, and keep the Russians at bay, then the military momentum on the ground is so one way at this point that Russia faces the the likely prospect of being defeated in Ukraine uh, in the spring and the early summer of next year. Thank you very much, Justin. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is important uh, for our listeners to, to know or understand? And and finally, how can we find this paper? How, how can we find what you've been writing? Uh, so the paper can be found uh, free on the, on the RUSI website. Uh, it's under, uh, if you <laughs> search Rusi Bronk, it'll uh, it'll pop up under my my staff tab. Um, it's also on the Rusi Twitter account, uh, on my Twitter account as well. Um, and it's it's uh, a Rusi special report it's called Russia's Air War uh, and Ukrainian Requirements for Air Defense. Um, so you can download the PDF there for, for free and there's no paywall or anything. Um, and I think in terms of uh, 
broader broader comments uh, i've probably rambled enough in people's ear for now and um, thank you very much for having me and thanks for the time not at all thank you so much for coming on it's been absolutely fascinating um, and really good to do a deep dive on the things you've been working on uh dom nichols would you like the final words just wondering if you had any reaction to everything that justin was saying earlier what, what what's your take on what he said well i mean it's there's a lot of red meat to uh, to get through there i've read the paper it's actually quite short it's only 46 pages and it reads very very easily so don't don't be don't be put off by that i recommend everyone go and have a look at the rusi website and have a read it is uh, it is very interesting and it's i mean he's a he's a beefy brain box he knows he knows his onions um and he is listened to by the government here the mod and and elsewhere so um i mean do pay attention to what he says cuz cuz others do very interesting arguments about the time for the west somehow to find the mechanism to supply Western like F-16, 18, Gripen, et cetera, et cetera, um, either through contractors or, or what have you, but the costs of not doing. But I thought when I was reading the paper, I thought it, I, I hadn't realised quite how close a close run thing it was in those early days. And reading it, I didn't have time to, to ask him, but it, but it was very clear. We, we've seen, bef- this is the evidence of, of, a, of a, an idea that we've, we've put forward before, not just us, you know, not claiming it for ourselves, but this, this idea that, that Russia invaded with, with well, basically three different armies, one in the north, one in the east, one in the south, and, um, uh, and then the Air Force doing its own thing. And it was very clear that the Air Force was not coordinated with ground forces. And if you read the paper, that just screams through. That it just didn't work on that sort of joint level of military planning. Um, but I'd just commend everyone to go and have a, have a read of the paper for themselves. Fascinating. For my final thought, I would just say, um, have a look at the G20. G20 starts next Tuesday. And um, this, uh, apparently we're going to, we're going to discover um, this week whether or not Putin is going to attend personally. I doubt he will, but it'll be really interesting to see what, what, what decision he makes. And the reason I doubt he will is because he, he's very rarely left Moscow or Russia since the since this phase of the war started, and he's only gone to other places where he's got a he's got a um, a passive audience or you know friendly crowd. I don't I can't see him going to the G twenty with with which are nine, nineteen of the most of the richest nations and the European Union. He's not, I don't think he's going to go there and potentially be snubbed at the photographs and all the rest of it. But I, I would just keep an eye on that one. So um, thanks, Jar Linda. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app, and check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Where's that dust coming from? 
Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.